As I was thinking about a message to prepare us for the Thanksgiving holiday, my heart was drawn to several passages of Scripture, but especially one text in Philippians chapter 2. So we're going to begin there, but we'll also end up spending quite a bit of time in Hebrew Scripture or the Old Testament as we sort of bounce around to look at the topic or the uh, specific issue that we want to cover this morning. So first, let's turn together to Philippians chapter 2. Turn with me, if you would, please, to the New Testament letter of Philippians. If you find First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. The third of the small letters after the large letters of Romans, First and Second Corinthians. Philippians chapter 2. And follow along as I read verses 12 through 16, though we won't really do an exposition of these. We're going to use one verse in here in particular as our theme, but I want us to have the context in our minds so we know what the Holy Spirit guided Paul to say at this point in the letter. Beginning in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing. So that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. If you have ever done a study of Paul's letter to the Philippians, then you know that this was a great church in the first century. This church had many positive character traits to be commended. In fact, as you read through the letter, no moral problems can be detected. Paul doesn't address any moral issues because it appears that there were no moral problems in the church. Furthermore, no doctrinal problems can be detected. Paul doesn't straighten out any of their erroneous theology or their doctrinal errors. No moral problems, no doctrinal problems, but there was one issue that seems to have been festering, and that was the deadly poison of discord. Paul addressed that issue head-on in the early verses of chapter 2 as he gave a plea for unity. He says in verse 1, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each of you esteem others better or more important than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul went on from there to present the example of the Lord Jesus, who humbled himself and looked out for the interests of others. In addition to that section... There are several other places in the letter where Paul seems to speak to the subject of unity in one way or another. 
Sometimes he comes right out with an exhortation to unity, unity like he did in chapter 1, verse 27, where he says, Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. A direct ex exhortation to unity. Over in chapter 4, he does the same thing as he closes the letter or begins to wind down. He says in chapter 4, verse 2, I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I ur urge you also, true companion, to help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So, Periodically, in this letter, Paul addresses the issue of unity in a direct manner. Our springboard text this morning, Philippians 2, is another case in point, but this time Paul comes at it from a different angle. Rather than just exhort the Philippians to unity, in chapter 2, verse 14, Paul exhorts them not to do the very thing that disrupts unity, and that is complaining. Now let me pause at this point and say by way of introduction, I honestly do not know of anyone in our church who is presently doing this. I'm glad I don't. It makes it a lot easier to give this message. I, in other words, I am not aiming at anyone. That's not to say that none of you are doing this, but I'm not aware of it if you are. So my point is this, if the Spirit of God convicts your heart, don't pass it off by saying, well, Brian said those things because he's trying to get me to change. No, I'm not grinding an axe this morning. I'm not riding a hobby horse by the things I'm going to say. However, however, I do know that it is a tendency of God's people to be complainers. People complain about, you name it, people complain about the music. They complain about communion on Sunday nights. They complain when we obey Jesus in Matthew 18 and make announcements about sin. They complain that I just do the same thing every Sunday and I'm not very creative. That's right. They complain about decisions made by the elders and deacons. And that's just a sampling. So I know the tendency of God's people but again, I stress, I can honestly say, I'm not aware of any of that right now in our church. None. So I want to emphasize that I am not aiming at anyone, but I do want us to understand the Lord's perspective of us when we are complainers instead of thankful people. Look at Paul's simple statement on this subject in chapter 2. Verse 14. Very short but powerful statement. Verse 14, do all things without complaining and disputing. Some translations, do all things without grumbling and arguing. It's important that Paul places this command right after the one he gave in verse 12, where he said, work out your own salvation. Live it out. You have it. He didn't say work for your salvation. You can't work for it. He said work it out. You have it. Live it out. And the reason it's so important to connect these two is because it's easy for us to slip into a mindset that thinks that all God is interested in is our actions, but he doesn't really care about our attitudes. Beloved, nothing could be further from the truth. God, yes, God calls on obedience, but not just mere external conformity where we crank out the actions. God wants an obedience with the right attitude from the heart. 
God wants an obedience that is not grudging or merely external. So Paul basically says here in Philippians 2, listen, as you work out your salvation, as you live it out, make sure that you do everything without murmuring and disputing. The New American Standard Bible says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. The NIV reads, do everything without complaining or arguing. The ESV reads, do all things without grumbling or questioning. In the original language, the Greek text, the word all comes first for emphasis. Everything we do should be done without murmuring or disputing. And the word do is in the present tense in the Greek text, which emphasizes ongoing action. So here it is. All things are included in all time. That says it. All things are included in all time. You, you could translate this verse this way. Continually do everything without grumbling or complaining. The first word, grumbling, complaining, depending on your translation, is the Greek word gagusmas. It's an onomatopoeic word. You may remember back to your days in English literature that an onomatopoeic word is a word that sounds like what it means. When you just say the word, you kind of know what it means. That's this word, gagusmas. Yeah, right? You hear it as soon as you say the word. It refers to murmuring or grumbling or complaining or griping or muttering in a low voice. This is the word that is used in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament in the passages, the many passages, that describe the complaining of the Israelites against Moses and against God. It's, it is complaint expressed in a negative attitude. The second word, depending on your translation, is disputing. Do all things without grumbling and complaining or arguing and disputing. This word means criticism or arguing, being argumentative. Beloved, God despises those kinds of attitudes and actions. Few sins, please hear this, few sins are uglier to God than complaining and a lack of thankfulness. One of the things that makes it so bad is that it is so contagious. Discontentment and murmuring or grumbling or complaining or griping and criticism spread like wildfire among people. Another thing that makes it so bad is that, generally speaking, the most indulged people are usually the most complaining people. That shouldn't surprise us. People who are self-centered and cater to themselves feed their self-love, and when things don't go their way, the only thing they know to do is to complain. Lamentations 3.39 says, Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? In other words, when you complain, that shows that you think you deserve better than you're getting. And it shows that you fail to recognize your sinfulness because when we are aware of our sinfulness, that produces humility rather than complaint. Discontentment, complaining, and an unthankful heart are serious matters to God. The fact is, for many people, complaining is just a way of life. If you don't believe me, see if you can make it through this day, just this day, without complaining. If you'll be honest, some of you will be amazed at how often you complain and gripe and criticize 
So the difficulty of verse 14 is not understanding what it's saying in the English or in the Greek. Right? We all understand what it means. The difficulty is doing what it says. Because murmuring and complaining are so common in our self-indulgent society, we tend to think it's not that big of a deal. But, beloved, it is a serious matter with God. Let me show you just how serious it is. Back up from Philippians to the left to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 1, Moreover, brethren, Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. Notice the emphasis on the word all in this verse. That term is used five times in the first four verses of this chapter. So Paul is trying to emphasize the oneness of Israel as a family in their blessings and experiences and privileges. They all had the privilege of being led by the Shekinah cloud, which was the cloud of God's presence. And they all had the privilege of experiencing that tremendous miracle of walking through the Red Sea when it parted and they walked on dry land. But there was more. They had more privileges. Verse 2 says, All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The basic idea of baptism is identification. All Israel had the privilege of being identified with the Lord's great leader, Moses. Moses was a spectacular leader. And all of Israel had the tremendous privilege of being identified with him as the Lord's appointed leader over them. But that's still not all. Verse 3 says, uh, All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So Israel not only had the privilege of having the Shekinah presence of God with them, they also had the spiritual sustenance of the pre-incarnate Christ on their journey. What tremendous privileges Israel enjoyed together as a community and a spiritual family. But verse 5 drops like a bomb. Verse 5 says, But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. The phrase, most of them, is an understatement if there ever was one. Of all the Israelites who left Egypt, two and a half to three million, only two, Joshua and Caleb, were allowed to enter the promised land. What was it that caused God to be so displeased with them? Obviously, we should learn from their example. And that is exactly what Paul says in the next verse, verse 6. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted. This is Paul's introduction as he is about to tell us the things that were so displeasing and grieving to God. In verses 6 through 10, Paul lists five major sins of Israel that caused God to be displeased with them. Sin number one, we just read it in verse 6, lusting after evil things. Israel craved whatever God had forbidden. This is the general overarching category, and the next four are the specifics. Sin number two, idolatry. Verse seven, and do not become idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now maybe you're saying, well, that's not a problem with Christians today. We're more sophisticated. We don't worship idols of stone or wood. That's probably true. 
Christians today might not worship little carved images, but many Christians do commit idolatry. You see, idolatry is not just or merely worshiping little pagan deities. Idolatry is worshiping anything other than God. Idolatry can take the form of worshiping money, people, popularity, things, materialism, sports, success, etc. These are the idols of the 21st century. Anything that we might love more than we love God is an idol, including self, which may be the biggest idol of the 21st century. And yet we're constantly being told today that it's okay to love yourself, good to love yourself. In fact, we're even told by many Christian leaders that we ought to develop more love for ourselves than we already have. That's like trying to put out a fire with gasoline. Second Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3, Paul warned about this form of idolatry when he said, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves. That's the form of idolatry that many are involved in today. But there's another form of idolatry that I see regularly among Christians. And that is the way so many Christians, please hear this one, so many Christians redefine God to fit into the mold of their wishes. I talk to Christians on a regular basis, unfortunately, about sin in their lives, and a common response I hear is this, well, God loves me and he understands. Or else they'll, they'll say, I've prayed about this and I have peace from the Lord. I'm continually shocked at how many Christians have redefined God so they can feel comfortable with sin. I know of Christians who say they have prayed and received peace from God about pursuing an unbiblical divorce, living in fornication, having homosexual relationships, and hating other Christians. And that's just a partial list. Beloved, when people think they can have peace with God while engaging in something God clearly forbids in His Word, then those people are not seeing the true God. They have made God into their own specifications. That is idolatry. And that form of idolatry is running rampant today. If you hold to a view of God that is different than the way He presents Himself in His Word, that's idolatry. I remember once receiving a letter from a man who was living in sin against God's word. And this is what he said to me as we were having this, this interchange back and forth. He, he said, well, we worship the same God, but we just see him differently. And I thought, yes, we do see him differently. Because the view you have of him is you can't find it anywhere in Scripture. He viewed God as a God who thinks it's okay to persist in sin if that is more convenient than obedience. So he was not only involved in a sin that God clearly forbids in Scripture, but he was also committing idolatry to try to justify his sin. I often tell Christians, you don't need to pray about doing things God has clearly said are wrong. You don't even have to pray about it. If I were to say to you in a conversation, you know, I'm praying about whether or not I should steal some money from this guy, what would your response be? You say, Brian, it's ridiculous. You don't need to pray about that. You're right. You don't need to pray about things like that. When God speaks clearly on a subject, then don't excuse your sin by saying, well, I've prayed about it. That's idolatry. Then sin number three that Paul lists here, sexual immorality, verse 8. 
He says, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. The Greek word that is used here is the broad general term for sexual sin. It can refer to engaging in sex before marriage. It can refer to adultery. It can refer to pornography. It refers to any sexual activity God forbids. And God considers sexual immorality among his people so treacherous that we're told here, as a result, he killed 23,000 Israelites in one day. So this is a message that constantly needs to be reaffirmed in the church. God sees sexual immorality as a serious offense. Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Israel was guilty of sexual immorality. Sin number four in this list, testing or trying Christ. Verse 9 says, nor let us tempt Christ. Test, depending on your translation. Test, try, tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. What is this talking about? The incident is being referred to is found in Numbers 21. So let's go back there to see what Paul is talking about. Go back to the third the fourth book of the Old Testament, Numbers, chapter 21. Three brief verses describe what Paul is referring to there in 1 Corinthians. Numbers 21, verse 4. It says, Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there is no food nor water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. You see, this attitude that the people of Israel had was one that that was trying to the Lord, testing of the Lord. There's a proper way to use the term test. Test the Lord, try the Lord, and see that he is good. But there's a wrong kind of testing or trying the Lord where you try his patience. You test him in the wrong sense. And that's what the people of Israel did. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, we should not do this. Don't test the Lord in this way. Don't test his patience. And yet the attitude that is so prevalent today is, well, this is the age of grace. God is a God of love. Besides, we can't lose our salvation. So why take the Christian life so seriously? The children of Israel learned the hard way when God sent fiery serpents among them to judge them. They were testing God, trying him, tempting him. Now back to 1 Corinthians 10. We've seen four of the major sins in Israel that caused God not to be pleased with the people. And those are serious offenses. I think you would agree. Lust, idolatry, sexual immorality, and trying God. Those are all very serious. But I'm afraid we fail to see that the next sin is just as serious. Look at the next one in the list. Verse 10. Paul says, Nor complain. As some of them complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Sin number five in the list, murmuring, complaining. 
In this context, it is complaining or grumbling about the way God is doing things among his people and through his leaders. Beloved, God does not take this lightly. Some of you would never think of lusting after evil things or committing idolatry or committing sexual immorality or trying Christ, yet you don't see anything wrong with murmuring. You don't see anything wrong with complaining. Can't you see that God places this sin on the same plane as those other sins? Murmuring and complaining and griping are just as wrong as lust, idolatry, adultery, and trying Christ. So maybe some of you are guilty of murmuring. You complain and grumble about the way God does things. Now you may not direct it specifically at God, but that's where it's directed, though you may not even realize it yourself. You think it's only on a horizontal level, but in essence you're complaining against God. That's a serious offense. Let me show you this in several passages. Go back again into Hebrew Scripture. Go back to the second book of Scripture, the book of Exodus, chapter 16. Exodus 16, beginning in verse 1. It says, And they journeyed from Elim, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger." Now this begins their complaining, and it becomes a broken record. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of Zin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Mo Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And it goes on again over in chapter, or let's skip past uh, Leviticus to Numbers chapter 11, where it, it resumes there. Numbers chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. So he called the name of the place Tabarah, because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, onions, and garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our, before our eyes. Do you see what they're doing here? They were complaining against God's provision. They were complaining about the manna God gave them daily in the wilderness. Rather than being thankful for this miraculous provision out in the middle of nowhere, they complained about it. 
They were saying it's the same old thing every day. You know, I've heard that exact complaint before here. I've heard people say, our church services are all the same. All we do is hear from the Bible every Sunday. It's the same old, same old. That was the attitude here. Look at chapter 14, just a few chapters to the right. Chapter 14, verse 1. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night, and all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. Skip down to verse 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me in all the signs which I have performed among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. And then down in verse 20, Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who reject, rejected me see it. And then in verse 26, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so will I do, will I do, I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness, all of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. You shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. But your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and bear the brunt of your infidelity, until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness according to the number of days in which you spied out the land 40 days for each day you shall bear your guilt one year namely 40 years and you shall know my rejection I the Lord have spoken this I will surely do this to this evil congregation who are gathered together immense against me in this wilderness they shall be consumed and there they shall die God was serious he had had enough. Ten times, he says, they complain and complain and complain against me. Ten times and I've had enough. Look at chapter 16, verse 41. On the next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. Now it happened when the congregation had gathered against Moses and Aaron, that they turned toward the tabernacle of meeting, and suddenly the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. So Moses said to Aaron, Take a censer and put fire in it from the altar. Put incense on it and take it quickly to the congregation to make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. Then Aaron took it as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the assembly. And already the plague had begun among the people. So he put the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living. So the plague was stopped. Now, when you read that and you think, oh boy, they... It's a good thing he caught that before he got too far because maybe just a little 
little bit of consequence. No, look at this. Now, those who died in the plague were 14,700 beside those who died in the Korah incident. This was a constant problem with the people of Israel, and God finally had enough. He killed 14,700 Israelites for murmuring and complaining and griping. God considers murmuring a serious offense. And the reason God considers it a serious offense, one of the reasons, is because murmuring sows discord and discontentment in the family of God. Here's how it works. Someone in the church will say to another individual, you know, I don't agree with the way the deacons put that budget item in there. I don't like that. Then this person, who previously hadn't thought that much about the situation at all, will begin to agree. You know, come to think of it, I don't like that either. In fact, I don't like anything those deacons have done. And off they go. What has happened is that a murmurer has spread his infection to an open party. Beloved, this this kind of thing goes on in churches. I'm not just talking about our church. This kind of thing goes on in churches all the time. Someone won't like the music. So he begins to talk to others about it. And discord and discontentment have spread like wildfire. Or someone doesn't like the direction one of the elders is taking a particular ministry. So that individual begins to complain behind that elder's back. Beloved, that is murmuring and complaining. And God doesn't take it lightly. Listen, if someone is trying to murmur and grumble and complain to you, just just put up your hands and stop him. Stop her. Instruct him or her to go in love to the person he or she has a problem with. If you disagree with the way someone is doing something, then have enough love in your heart to sit down and talk with him or her about it. But don't murmur and grumble and complain. Listen to what God says in Proverbs. You know Proverbs is the book of wisdom. And Proverbs 6, I'll just read it to you. Proverbs 6, verse 16 says this. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies. Well, yeah, we agree with all those, but listen to the last one. One who sows discord among the brethren. Whoa, that's in the same list? God hates it when we murmur and gripe and complain because we are sowing discord and discontentment among the brethren. Another reason God hates murmuring is because murmuring is a character trait of apostates. Go over with me to the second to the last book of the Bible, the little tiny book of Jude, right before the book of Revelation. You probably have to find the book of Revelation and go backwards to Jude. This book is about apostates, those who have rejected the faith. And I want you to notice the description that God gives them. It might might surprise you to read these words. Jude verse 12 says, These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. 
Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are, now notice this, all of that indicting, judging language, judge language of judgment, Coming off of that, it says, these are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lust. Do you see the connection? They want what they want, their own lust, and when they don't get it, they complain about it. They grumble, whatever it is. He's just talking generically. They walk according to their own lust. They just do what they want to do in life. They want what they want in life, and when they don't get what they want in life, they grumble and complain. And they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. That's remarkable to me that God would put that description, that item in a list of things that are basis for judgment of apostates. They're grumblers and complainers. Contrast this with the gracious words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 5, 9, when he said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. God longs for his people to be characterized as peacemakers, not complainers who sow discord among the brethren. Back up just a little bit to the letter of James. Just go to the left past a few letters. James chapter 5. James chapter 5 verse 9. James says, do not grumble. Depending on your translation, do not groan against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. This is, this is everywhere. Do you, do you realize how often this theme comes up in Scripture? Unless you think it's just an isolated concept in James, just go back, look at the very next letter, 1 Peter. After James is 1 Peter, look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9. It says, be hospitable to one another. And then this, without grumbling, without complaining, without griping. God speaks to this issue time and time and time again because it's so important to him. It's so important to him that we deal with this, this attitude that he despises when he sees it in his people. Another reason God hates murmuring and complaining is because at the root, it reveals an unthankful heart. At the root of a complaining or grumbling heart is discontentment with how God has chosen to do things. People who murmur and grumble and complain reveal the fact that they think, they may never say this, but they think they know better than God how he ought to be doing things in their lives. Though they may never say it, their attitudes and their actions of grumbling and complaining and griping are making that statement. Let me show you a passage in Matthew 11 as we close this morning. Go back to the very first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 11. This is a passage we return to 
often because of how important it is as a check on our attitudes. Verse 2 tells us, and when John, this is not John, the brother of James, James and John, the two brothers, sons of thunder, sons of Zebedee. This is John the Baptist, John the baptizer. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he was being held in Machaerus, which is over by the Dead Sea, over on the east side. It's a, it's a God-forsaken piece of land out there. It's wilderness. He's, he's out in this wilderness prison in a dungeon. When he heard about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? In other words, John is beginning to be confused. I mean, he was told since he was an infant, he's the king's forerunner. He's the one to prepare the way for the king. So he had it all clear in his mind. He goes, prepares the way for the king, and then the king comes. The king receives his coronation, sets up his kingdom, and John is the one who is commended as the forerunner. It's not the way it was working out. John's in prison. And Jesus isn't setting up the kingdom. He's doing other things. John's confused. He thought that if Jesus was the Messiah, he should be doing things differently. So he sent two of his disciples to say, are you the one? I mean, I thought you were the one. Are, are you? Are you the one? Or should we look for someone else? You're, you're not following protocol. I said, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is coming. And I expected the king come, to come through and establish the kingdom. Not happening. Notice the response of Jesus. Jesus answered and said to him, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. What is Jesus saying here? He is saying, you go tell John, I am doing exactly what I should be doing. I am doing exactly what Hebrew Scripture said the Messiah would do. John had forgotten about all of these passages in Hebrew Scripture that say, that, that say when the Messiah comes, he will open the eyes of the blind, he will cause the lame to walk, the lepers will be cleansed, the deaf will hear, the dead will be raised up, the poor will have the gospel preached to them. Jesus is basically saying, I'm right on schedule. God's schedule. I may not be following John's schedule, but I'm following God's schedule. And then this verse. What a verse. Verse 6. And blessed... Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Some, some translations say, blessed is he who does not stumble because of me. Now think about that, beloved. You mean we actually could be offended at Jesus? Oh, absolutely, if we would be honest. You mean that we could, that the way Jesus works could cause us to stumble? Yes, if we allow ourselves to stumble. So Jesus is saying here, blessed is he who's not offended, who doesn't get offended at what I'm doing and the way I'm doing it. Let me, let me say it this way. Blessed is he who is not upset with the way I run my business. That's what Jesus was saying. Blessed, let me be more specific. Blessed is the person who does not get bitter. Blessed is the person who doesn't harden his heart. Blessed is the person who is thankful even when he doesn't understand what God is doing. Blessed is the person who is thankful instead of complaining. Now can you see why the Holy Spirit 
guided Paul in Philippians 2.14 to say, do everything without murmuring or complaining. Do everything without grumbling or complaining. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head, I would encourage you to examine your heart and to see if you have a thankful heart or a complaining heart. This is a message that we need not merely at the Thanksgiving season. It's a message we need all the time because of our tendency to be complainers and not thankful people. So allow the Spirit of God to speak to your heart, to see just where you are in all of this that we have seen from God's Word this morning. Now, if you're here today without Christ, then it's understandable that you don't have a thankful heart because there are probably a lot of things that really don't prop thankfulness if you don't know Christ. So what you need to hear is not merely to have a thankful heart. You need to hear the importance of turning to Jesus Christ in faith, surrendering to Him, so that he could begin to work in you a heart that is grateful and thankful. Father, as we close our time together this morning, we realize that we have looked at some sobering passages of Scripture, strong words that you've given us, but they're in your word. In fact, they're scattered throughout your word, all over the place. So it's obviously something that you want us to hear, you want us to understand, you want us to embrace. And we think of Jesus saying, Blessed is the person who is not offended because of me. Blessed is the person who's thankful even when he doesn't understand what I'm doing. Blessed is the person who's thankful instead of complaining. Father, remind us, prompt us, enable us to be thankful people, not merely at this time of the year, but always and in all things as Philippians 2 exhorts us. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.